Amen. All right, so why don't you take your Bibles. Okay, clap, clap. Sorry, didn't mean to interrupt. Please. Thank you. No. <laughs> take your Bibles. Go to Isaiah. We're in the book of Isaiah still. We're going to be there for another couple of weeks. I'm encouraging you to go to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9. So as you're uh, kind of getting your Bible there and getting ready, let me um, uh, just kind of throw a couple things at you. Again, Mark mentioned the, the cards that hopefully you were handed, and there's still a lot of them available. Um, I, I want to encourage us as a church family this morning, um, not just, hey, let's get as many people here for the Christmas events as we can. I mean, that's all fine and good and cool and wonderful and everything, but I'm going to encourage you to right now, just sitting here, come up with a name. Come up with the name of somebody either you work with, your neighbor with, you do business with, you run into at your children's events and activities, whatever it might be, somebody that, that comes to mind, because more importantly than anything else, they need to know about Jesus. And what I would encourage you to do this week is take that one card and simply invite them. Again, I care less how many people are here on Christmas Eve. But we want you, Uniontown Bible Church, to be the church. And we want you to have tools and resources to reach out to those around you who don't know Jesus. And we want to make it as easy as possible for you. This is pretty easy. So let me encourage you. Just think of that one name. In a moment, we're going to pray. And I'm going to encourage you to, to go ahead and, and, and pray for them. Um, let me, let us, let's pray. Uh, I'm going to take just a couple. I do want to take some extended time to pray this morning. So if you don't mind joining me in praying, um, I'm going to ask that, that we just bow our heads, close our eyes, and in these just few brief moments, that first, as, I'm going to ask that you pray where you are and ask that God would open your heart to what he has for you from his word this morning. God, I pray for my brothers and sisters who are sitting here this morning. I ask, Father, that you would fill them full of your spirit right now. That God, as they come face to face with you, that your spirit would put his omniscient finger in our souls, cause us to see the places that we need to repent and change, come back to you. I'm going to ask even as you sit quietly, if you, if you don't mind, if you would pray for me, uh, that I'd be able to communicate what is a very, very amazing message, and it's not mine, but it's his. God, I, I don't feel selfish asking these folks to pray for me because I, I need it. What I need most desperately is your wisdom because what I hold in front of me this morning is your word. So God, I am, I am more aware of my tininess and puniness right now than, than I have a lot of other times. So God, we need you to work. I need you to work in me. God, you're good. We sang it. We mean it. We struggle with that sometimes, but you are 
so very good to us. You have given us more than we could ever ask for, more than we could possibly imagine. So God, today I pray we would take this time you've given us seriously. I pray for those who might be with us who are outside of your family. God, I pray that today, if there is someone here who doesn't know Jesus Christ, that you would save them from themselves. You would save them, and not not with explosions and fireworks, but God, that your salvation would be big and magnificent and glorious for them today. And God, today I pray that you would remind those of us who already call you Daddy. Remind us what it is that we have been given in the arrival of Jesus Christ in the manger that day. Remind us of what it is we have to look forward to when Christ does return. Thank you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Hopefully by now you've found Isaiah 9. If not, like I've said before, just give up. I'll start reading in verse 1 and read the first handful of verses here. It says this, Nevertheless, the gloom of the distressed land will not be like that of the former times when God humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he'll bring honor to the way of the sea, to the land east of the Jordan and to Galilee of the nations. See, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. A light's dawned on those living in the land of darkness. You've enlarged the nation. You've increased its joy. The people have rejoiced before you as they rejoice at harvest time and as they rejoice when dividing spoils. You've shattered their oppressive yoke and the rod on their shoulders, the staff of their oppressor, just as you did on the day of Midian. Every trampling boot of battle, the bloodied garments of war will be burned as fuel for the fire. For a child will be born for us. A son will be given to us. The government will be upon his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The dominion will be vast. Its prosperity will never end. He'll reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, to sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. And the zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. So when you read Isaiah 9 in its context, you realize that the people of God are in deep Deep trouble. Okay, they're being surrounded by their enemies, the Assyrians. The Assyrians are getting ready to come in and overthrow them. They're ready to, uh, to attack them. And the death count is going to be immense. And there's absolutely nothing the people of Israel, the people of Judah can do about it. And that's the context of when Isaiah writes this. And I think you and I may not have warring enemies waiting for us at the bottom of our driveway. But if there's one thing we have enough of, it's trouble. We've got personal troubles, whether those be bills, uh, our health, understanding what our career moves should be, even if it's just the daily grind of life. uh, The world has problems. It's got political problems and crime and poverty and and all kinds of other stuff. And so we we could use a lot more of a lot of things, but we uh, don't need more trouble. But what we're looking at this morning is where the prophet Isaiah comes on the scene and says, there's hope. There's hope. And his name is Wonderful Counselor. His name is Mighty God. 
His name is Everlasting Father. His name is Prince of Peace. That's where real hope sets in. And so today we're going to look, um, let me go back here. Sorry, I'm messing around with stuff. We're going to go look at Mighty God. So we have the opportunity to dig into what Mighty God actually means. And I think what you're going to find is that we don't use the word mighty an awful lot today, do we? So, so we don't have a good understanding of what mighty actually means. And so as I was thinking about this and pondering this, there were some songs that came to mind, though, where I think we do actually use the word mighty. I think the one that is most common for our young people today is this one. Trying to watch young parents. Anybody's having seizures thinking about having to watch that show again? Okay, so that's a miss for a lot of the generations in the room, but this one is not a miss for most of you. There you go, good. Good, so, and I was thinking about it, it's like, okay, those are all fine and good, but there's really one song. There's one song that really captivates what it means to be mighty, and it's this one. So next week, I'm going to walk up the stage with that song playing. (laughs) See, see, actually, those serve no purpose other than to get them stuck in your head, so you're welcome. (laughs) What does mighty mean? I mean, we, we don't even understand. We don't use that word today. What does mighty mean? In the Hebrew, mighty, the word is geber. So there you go. You know some Hebrew, and it sounds ridiculous. Geber. And what does Geber mean in the Hebrew? It means mighty, a strong one, a valiant one, a fighter, a hero. So with that definition in mind, and a pen in my hand, when you think of Old Testament characters... Who do you think of that matches that definition? A strong one, a valiant one, a fighter, and a hero. David, I heard David, Samson, Joshua, Moses. Any other heroes in the Old Testament? Gideon. Elijah. There you go. Good. Okay, I'll stop there. That's, we'll come back to that. Um, thankfully, I stopped after six, not after 350. I know not to ask you guys to text me anymore, so that's good. <laughs> Fool me once. Isaiah 9, 6 talks about this mighty God, this one who's going to come, this hero who's going to arrive on the scene, and we actually hear about that mighty one. We hear about that hero for the very first time in Scripture, in a very familiar place. Creation is done. Adam and Eve are enjoying perfect life in a perfect garden, in perfect fellowship with the magnificent, omnipotent, omniscient God. Everything is as good as it has ever been and as it will ever be until Christ returns. It's perfect. So the serpent shows up. And the serpent shows up and does what Satan does through the serpent, and that is deceives Eve. And what he does is he lies about God. So did God really say? 
Oh, you won't surely die. The reason God doesn't want you to eat of that tree is because if you eat of that tree, you're going to be as good as God. And so what Satan is saying to Eve is, God's really good and this is magnificent, but he's holding out on you. And he doesn't want you to be as good as you could possibly be. And Eve takes the bait. She shares the fruit with Adam, and instantly there's this moment that occurs in their life, and you read it in Genesis 3, that they become aware of a very odd thing to become aware of all of a sudden. They're naked. Suddenly they realize they're naked. They're filled with shame because shame comes from sin. They scramble about to cover their nakedness. As they are in the garden, they hear the voice of the familiar one coming to walk through the garden again. It's God himself, and you can hear him calling out to Adam and Eve, Where are you? We're going to talk about that question much more next week. But where are you? And as Adam and Eve come out from behind the trees, they say, we we were hiding from you because we were naked. And there's another heartbreaking question. God asks them, who told you that you were naked? In essence, what God is saying is, Why do you have shame? In the middle of this interaction, God confronts the serpent. God confronts Adam and Eve. He brings about not only the calling out of their sin, but he also tells them what the consequences are going to be for each and every one. But in the middle of that moment, and it's mind-blowing to think about it, the, the smoke still hasn't cleared from the field of battle yet. The haze of of war and rebellion is still floating over the perfect garden. And yet God looks at Adam and Eve, and yes, he brings the consequences, but then he brings something far greater. He makes a promise. And so while there's grief over their sin, there's not despair for Adam and Eve because God gave them hope. And he said in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, there is one of your offspring that is coming. And he's going to crush the head of the enemy. It's this promise that comes, the proto-evangelion, the first message of the gospel. And God promises them, someone will destroy the serpent. And in destroying the serpent, he will rescue you from your sin and from its consequences. And, And someone would bring future victory. And that someone, Eve, is going to come from your family. So when you hear that as a mom, what do you start doing? You look at your children a little differently, don't you? So as you read through Genesis 4, you find that Adam and Eve have two boys, one named Cain, one named Abel. And upon the birth of each of them, I am certain that Adam and Eve looked at those boys with hope and eager expectation. Until the one day, Cain and Abel leave the house together. But only Cain returns after murdering his brother in jealous rage. Can you imagine the heartbreak for Adam and Eve? One who they had hoped would rescue them from their sin instead is broadening their sin. And that is a little bit of a picture of what the entire Old Testament looks like. There is the promise of hope, the promise of a hero, the promise of deliverance, and then somebody comes on the scene and everybody... This is the one, this is the one. And then every single potential hero turns up to be incomplete, 
disappointing and otherwise far too human. And that's true about all these names that you shouted out. David, what an amazing king, right? The young man trusted in God for strength and courage as he fought the lion, as he fought the bear, and now he's going to stand before mighty Goliath with no weapons. He's going to take out his sling, and it's just perverse, perfect shot. Down goes the giant. Everybody celebrates him. Then the king Saul at the time is walking through the city, and what he hears is the women shouting celebration songs that are saying, Saul was pretty awesome and killed a few thousand, but David has killed tens of thousands. He's the man. So the hope is filling up in the Israelites that this is the hero we've been waiting for. This is the one who will crush the head of our enemy. Then there's a season that the kings were supposed to go to battle. David stayed home. He looked out over the rooftop, saw Bathsheba. And what we found is this great king, this wonderful man named David, is a disappointment as a hero. Samson. Samson, that's a little easier to see the disappointment, isn't it? What a huge dude. Wiping people out every time. He, and then he falls in love with Delilah. So don't name your girls Delilah. If you did already, I'm sorry. Just call her Deli or something. <laughs> but uh, he falls in love with Delilah. And I mean, this, this guy is committed. I mean, if nothing else, he might not be a great hero, but he is the picture of the romantic. He is committed now, he doesn't want to tell her where his strength lies, but he is committed, and he just keeps going and going. And when he's faced with the realization that he might lose the person who he has made God in his life, he loses his integrity. His hair is cut, and he's taken captive. Samson, the one who had come to deliver Israel from their oppressors, because Israel had fallen into great sin and they had called out for a deliverance over and over and over again. And every time they did, God brought along a judge. And here's this judge, Samson, coming in to save the day. This is Mighty Mouse, if there wasn't one. But he is disappointment. Joshua. I think, I think, well, let me start with Moses. Moses is the next one. Let me go that way first. Moses. So you have Moses who comes into Egypt, let my people go, 10 plagues, this amazing thing. He leads millions of Israelites out of Egypt, across the Red Sea. That's faith, that's courage, that's valiance, that's a hero, right? But God said, speak to the rock. And Moses said, these people drive me crazy. And he struck the rock. It's a picture of a man who is leading people, a man who everybody had their hope and confidence in at times, because you know the story, they were days out of Egypt, and they're like, why can't we just go back to Egypt? When we got to sit and eat at the pots of meat, there were no pots of meat. They, they completely sanctified their memory so that they could, let's just complain, we want meat, and then God has a sense of humor. I mean, he brought lots of bread, and he covered the ground with manna, and he says, you want meat? And the Bible says he gave them so much meat that it was coming out their noses. Moses, because of his sinful actions and his inability to be the hero 
that they all wanted him to be. He got to see the promised land. He never got, never got to go in. Joshua, however, Joshua got to go in, right? So Joshua's leading his people. And this is the story I think we sanctify in our Sunday school rooms and our, 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 all the times the children get together. We talk about Joshua fought the battle of Jericho and they all, ah, shout out. The wall comes down. It's like, isn't that nice? No. If you painted that image in realism on your child's wall, we would have to call the police on you. It's a brutal, grimy, bloody, violent image. Joshua is leading his people into the promised land, and he is literally wiping everybody out else who is living there. Great hero, mighty leader, absolutely. But there's a small problem. He started to believe his own press clippings. And we can just attack this little place called AI by ourselves. We don't need God's help. We don't need to ask him. We don't need to pray to him. We're just going to do it ourselves, and they get run out by Union Bridge. Elijah, what a man who followed after God. Yet even in Elijah, as he taught, as he preached, as he prophesied, he always had to point to another. Because he wasn't the one. And the prophets came regularly and they spoke to the kings and they spoke to the people and they continued to call them to God. They called them to repentance. They tried to warn them and they tried to get them to, to return back to God, to return back to God. But the kings completely and regularly ignored everything the prophet said until the time when the nation was divided, the nation was thrashed, the nation was punished. And they had no hope of escaping it on their own. But then we get to Isaiah 9. Assyria is knocking on the door. The people are terrified. But the promise is this. There is one who is coming. And his name is Mighty God. All the power that is needed to rescue you from this moment will be found in this one. And for the first time in the promise of a savior to come, we find out that this hero that has been promised since Genesis 3 is not just a mere man. This hero that is promised isn't going to be a king who shows up to lead his people. This hero is to be God himself. God himself coming to fix what is wrong, to crush the head of the enemy because God himself, he is the only one mighty enough to bring about redemption and freedom for his people. And that's been the promise since the beginning. Genesis chapter three, that's the promise. It is also the promise that is given at the end of the Old Testament. Malachi chapter four says this. For look, the day is coming burning like a furnace when all the arrogant and everyone who commits wickedness will become stubble. The coming day will consume them, not leaving them root or branches, says the Lord of armies. What, what, what Malachi is saying is there is going to be a complete and utter defeat of the enemy. 
It's not incidental. It's going to be an intentional crushing of the enemy. Just like God promised in Genesis chapter 3, Malachi is reiterating that promise, saying it's going to happen. Verse 2, But you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. And you'll go out and playfully jump like calves from the stall. So, so, so while there is intentional crushing of the enemy, there is intentional and amazing rescue for those who are gods. And the picture that Malachi gives us is a picture of a people who are delivered completely and forever from the darkness, from the pain, from the grief that's found in a world that has been cursed by sin. And what he says is, let me tell you what that's going to look like when you're suddenly freed from this world that's cursed by sin, when you're suddenly rescued from all the diseases, when you're suddenly no longer being held down by the threat of death. Now you get to live forever. You are freed from the sin's consequences. What it's going to look like is a bunch of pent-up animals who are suddenly released into the field to play. Or in our vernacular, you're driving to grandma's house for six hours and you've got kids under the age of eight in the back seat. You finally pull up and the doors of the car burst open and children spill out like it's a carnival. And they're running through the yard screaming and jumping up and down because they've been so trapped up in that car for so very long and it doesn't matter how many DVDs you play. That unexpected, sudden freedom is marked by a pure joy that is impossible to duplicate. And what Malachi says is, there's coming a day. There's coming a day when the sun of righteousness will rise. The enemy will be crushed. And God's people will be freed. What a promise. What a picture. What enthusiasm. What an amazing God. And then Malachi 4 ends. And if you're there in your Bible, if you turn the page, it probably looks a lot like mine. A lot of space. Because in the conclusion, Malachi saying, there's coming a day, this mighty God is going to come, he's going to rise with healing in his wings, there's going to be freedom, and you're going to celebrate. Silence. For 400 years. Waiting. We hate to wait. Got to see a little bit of that this week at Chick-fil-A. Some of you were there. I got to see you there. I had to wait almost 10 minutes for this little slice of heaven called peppermint chocolate chip milkshake. And in that 10 minutes, I got to watch moms, dads, and children completely lose their minds. We hate to wait. You want to know how much we hate to wait? We hate to wait this much. I contemplated getting to this point in my sermon and walking out the door just for 30 seconds. But I thought you would all leave. We hate 
to wait. And this time of year, if there's a picture of Advent that we want to communicate to our children, one way we communicate that is by the horrible tradition that some of you have of not putting the Christmas tree up. That's a wonderful tradition. But the horrible tradition of wrapping all of their presents and putting them under the tree now. So that every night your child sits there and weeps. How many nights to Christmas? And dad's response is 1 Corinthians 10, 13, there is no temptation that has taken you, but such as is common to man. <laughs> and if the kid's smart, he's like, yeah, Ephesians 6, 4, fathers, don't provoke your children to wrath. <laughs> but, but in this, there's, there's a sense of waiting. We hate to wait, but especially when we are surrounded by trouble. Wait. No communication from God. No messages of hope. No appearances. No lifelines. Nothing. Nothing but different nations coming into power and finding different ways to oppress Israel. Pain. Anguish. Frustration, certainly doubt. Until God cracked the silence with the wailing of a baby. Until the perfect time, Galatians 4 says, when, when the time had come to completion, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive the adoption as sons. God's answer to everything that troubles us, everything that terrorizes us, everything that, that's crushing us, God's answer is a child. But not just any child. It's a child with all of the power, strength, might, and righteousness that was needed to crush Satan. And that child was found in a manger. See, this isn't just a tiny little baby. This child is the mighty God. The true hero. The one who has come to rescue us because he's the only one who can. So, so let me challenge you with this. We sing a lot of Christmas songs this time of year. Most of them we don't engage with. They're pithy, quaint. Someone used the word cutesy this week. And as we sing those cutesy Christmas songs, if we're not careful, we'll forget that in each and every one of those songs that speaks about that tiny baby in the manger, the song is containing the full thunder and glory and might and majesty of an omnipotent God. So as we sing the song, Hark the Herald, you get to the third verse. Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace. Hail the Son of Righteousness. Light and life to all he brings. In the middle of the darkest days, 
400 silent years. They had heard nothing from God. The baby in the manger. The declaration of the angels. The light that overcame the darkness. He brings life to those where there is only death. He's risen with healing in his wings. That is total victory. Mild he lays his glory by. Do not skip that. Jesus Christ laid aside the full privilege of being in the very nature as God, and he entered into our world. The mighty God showed up. He was born that man no more may die. He was born to raise the sons of earth. He was born to give them second birth because Jesus is God. He can forgive sin. He can defeat Satan. He can free people from the power of evil. He can redeem them and he can restore their broken souls. That is a power that this world has never seen apart from the manger. You realize what this means? As separated from God as you are in your sin, the mighty God became the means for our being brought back to himself because he's the only one strong enough to do it. And that's why the angels were shouting, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill to men. God, thank you for your precious son, Jesus Christ. God, we don't even pretend to understand it all. We can't imagine the full depth of the blessing that you have given to us. But God, I pray this morning just for a tiny sliver of a moment that our eyes would be open and we'd be able to behold your might and your glory. Father, we have been given life. We haven't earned it. We certainly don't deserve it. But it's been given to us through Jesus Christ. So Lord, if there is somebody here this morning who doesn't know him, God, I pray you'd give them the courage just to yield. And just cry out. And to celebrate the fact that God was willing to show up for them. So today, and all the days after this in our Christmas season, may we worship you well. For it's in the name of the mighty, the powerful, and the omniscient, the omnipotent God. Amen. Amen.